Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the double delight today of speaking with Dr. Ricardo Slavestra, who is an associate professor at Federal University of Campina Grande in Brazil, and Dr. Alan Herbert, who is research fellow at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, of course, in Oxford, UK. Welcome both to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for us. It's my pleasure, and it's a particular pleasure to have a, 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 an OCHS colleague. I teach continuing studies, and and really there's so much uh, fascinating research happening at the OCHS, and uh, ironically, it's through the podcast that I keep up with with all that's being produced. So tell us a bit about um, the backstory of um, how this project came to be. Okay. All right. First of all, thank you very much, Raj, for inviting us. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about um, our volume. Uh, so the title of this volume is uh, Vaishnava Concepts of God, uh, Philosophical Perspectives. Uh, well, the backstory is is something like that. Uh, the, the book, the volume, is one of the outcomes of a project. Uh, called Global Philosophy of Religion Project, hosted by the University of Birmingham and funded by uh, the Joe Templeton Foundation. The idea of the project was to make philosophy of religion global um, because in philosophy, uh, most philosophers of religion, they have a Christian background and most of the discussions in terms of uh, uh, traditions and religions, they, they tend to, to focus on Christianity. So this project is an attempt, and many people, they, they are aware of this problem. So this project, uh, led by Eugene Lagazala, uh, was an attempt to, to include other traditions as well within the, the philosophical debate. Then um, we got a small grant, and the, the goal of this small grant was to study specifically Vaishnavism. From a philosophical perspective, we had two conferences, we had this volume and a special issue of Sophia, which is a philosophical journal that will be published uh, next year. Um, so that's the background. Perhaps Alan wants to add something. Um, no, no, I think you covered pretty much everything. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Great. So just before we dive into the details, say a bit more about um, philosophy for religion, the philosophical perspective. Say a bit more about that. Who, who for, for those of us in the audience who perhaps uh, are more generalist in their training. Sure, sure, of course. And perhaps Alan can, can complement and, and speak a bit about uh, the general framework uh, which is dominant in, in this test. Well, uh, yeah, philosophy, um, we asked what many people call fundamental questions. So when we speak about philosophy of religion, God is really the main topic. So, for instance, one one classic topic is whether or not God exists, and whether or not we have we have evidence to to believe in God. 
if, if the Eastern belief is, is, is rational or not. As far as we are concerned, we are dealing with the concept of God, which is also an important part of the debate because uh, we speak about God, right? But that's just a word. There are multiple concepts of God. Each tradition has its concept of God, and there are a lot of philosophical concepts of God. Many people speak about the, 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 the God of philosophers, which is quite different from the God of living traditions. Um, so, so when you speak about the, the concept of God, uh, and when we uh, address it from a philosophical perspective, we, we, we think, for instance, of things like, uh, is a specific concept of God consistent? Because you may give a description of a concept of God, which is contradictory. And we don't deal uh, very well with contradictions, right? There's a famous uh, principle by Aristotle, which is called the principle of no contradiction. And, and I mean, many, many things in the history of ideas depend on this principle. So th this, this is one of, of the things that we deal with when we are dealing with the concept of God from a philosophical perspective. Um, there are other things also, and as far as our volume is concerned, so I might mention that. Uh, in philosophy, uh, Western philosophy, right, uh, the dominant uh, approach is what is called perfect being theology. It's basically the idea that God is perfect, but not, it's a, it's a kind of maximally, maximally perfect being. That's why you say that God is omnipotent, uh, omniscient. Uh, holy good, and so on and so forth. And many, many philosophers, they, I mean, many philosophers, they, they approve the concept of God from this perspective, like, like Anselm, like, like Descartes, like, like Leibniz, Spinoza also. So, um, one of the things that we wanted to do in this project was to find out the extent to which those concepts of God we find in Indian traditions. This, the, the extent to which they can be related to this to this general approach, whether or not this is a perfect being approach, because also in many Indian texts like the Bhagavad Gita, we 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 find reference to the idea that God is perfect. But what is that notion notion of perfection? Yeah, great. Thank you. We'll we'll momentarily uh, dive into uh, what you have to say in the Bhagavad Gita. I think Alan wanted to add something. Please go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add something from um, the actual context of this volume and how we're dealing with the philosophy of religion with this volume. Because um, we could say, in a sense, the way that Ricardo described it is very much a global idea, the idea the, the ideas that are coming out. There's many areas that philosophy of religion covers, and we're specifically dealing with the concept of God. And within more the Abrahamic side, this is what they go for, maximal greatness and all this type of thing. So... So main question we were we were asking, and a major pushback we were getting as well, was the idea of whether this type of approach, this type of method towards understanding what God is, what God is like, would translate over to India and the Indian traditions and how they approached it. Because we could say that within the Indian traditions, they have a developed philosophy, philosophical systems. You know, you're you're familiar with with, you know, Nyaya, even to degree Vedanta and all these. They all degree they all deal with philosophical issues and they have their philosophical methodologies. So we did, amongst the authors who are familiar with Hindu studies, specifically or Indian studies, 
um, get a little bit of a pushback from this, saying, well, actually, you can't really kind of apply these these kind of like categories and this way of thinking into Indian thought. So a main, main um, how would you say, a main challenge for us to see was to see whether we could actually do this. Because there is a there is an argument to be made that, you know, the ideas that are coming out of India need to be translated into other languages as well. So we could use philosophy of religion or the ideas, the methodology of philosophy of religion to be able to understand these Indian traditions as well. So it's a little bit of a kind of, how can I say, a little bit of a kind of a, um, a shaky ground almost we came across, you know. On number one, we have the ideas that are coming out of India themselves of how to approach God and what God is. And then on the other side, we have a structured methodology that especially people in a global kind of philosophical um, tradition or, or how can I say interest or whatever would be, would be more familiar with and how to make these two kind of fit together. So this was one of the kind of goals of this book was to see whether this could work and see whether we could actually get something, get a kind of conversation going between these two different traditions. Of, of different ways of approaching ideas on what God is like. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah your follow-up comment actually preempted the next uh, question that I was going to ask, uh, which is along the following lines. We could perhaps touch on it or, or keep it in the back of our minds. Is the overarching goal, idea, thrust, agenda to ascertain the extent to which Indic data fits into a Western philosophical framework? Or is the agenda goal thrust to ascertain the extent to which the the the, the data that we're studying at the, the, the Indic conceptions of the divine actually change or alter the framework? Now, this is a question that comes to mind that you're talking about: is is it that we uh, we have these these really great lenses that have been used by uh, no shortage of of uh, sort of modern Western philosophers, some of whom you've named and. From a, from a, from a, uh, you know, stemming from a Greco-Roman and Abrahamic traditions, you know, we've got these sharp lenses, and do we now see? Well, what can we see using the, the, the sort of philosophy of religion lenses in these texts, or is it a question of well, uh, what lenses does the Indic tradition have to offer on the same shared, perhaps uh, comparable issues, problems? And so this is sort of a, a tension, and I think perhaps that's. Uh, related to which what you call the shaky ground, I don't necessarily know that it's shaky ground. I think um, I think to be charitable, it's it, certainly it's defensible ground because you've obviously published fascinating uh, papers on that ground. So um, you can feel free to comment on that if you'd like. Uh, otherwise, we can uh, dive into what you have to say about the Bhagavad Gita in, in uh, the the first substantive chapter. Please go ahead. Yeah, I would I would say yeah, maybe shaky ground was the wrong word or something. I I think I used that word because of the um, the kind of issues we had with authors, you know, just how they were accepting it, you know, whether they could accept it. Some were on board straight away. Yes, I think this is a good idea. This is actually a good way to kind of, and as you said, one of the approaches you said, it's a good way to allow Indian philosophy to influence Western philosophy in a sense, to inform Western philosophy, to give it a voice, so to say, you know, and you need a language for that. And the language is, uh, is you know, in this day and age, Western philosophy has kind of a, a dominant voice in it. So, yes, some were like that. Others were kind of, well, we can't really do that. You know, we can't really use these categories. We can't use the attributes and these type of things to understand Indian philosophy in a sense. 
And so you ended up with a little bit of a discussion with them. But it's interesting, that became a kind of micro discussion of what the whole book became, a major discussion on. It's a dialogue. I would say it's more a dialogue than anything else, rather than saying that we're, we're, we're trying to understand Indian thought through Western categories uh, or the other way around or informing, although those two are definitely in there. I think the overarching kind of um, message coming from this volume is that there's a possibility for a dialogue to take place. And that dialogue takes place not only uh, theoretically through the ideas that are coming through the book, but also in terms of the scholars involved as well. Because even by performing this task of trying to write a, a chapter on philosophy, made them think of their own fields very differently. A lot of the authors in this volume are actually from Indian studies and not trained in philosophy. However, they had to think things differently in order to do that. And that in itself created a dialogue. So I would say the overarching kind of, um, what would I say, the overarching theme in the volume or implicit theme in the volume is a dialogue between kind of this philosophy of religion and Indian studies. Yeah, if, if, if I may add some things, I mean, the, I think the expression comparative philosophy is quite useful here because I think that's what we try to do, comparative philosophy. And um, yeah, this way, we, as Adam said, we are trying to, to establish a kind of dialogue from two traditions, between two traditions. And at the end, we, we, we get things from both sides. Let's see. Yeah, the, the, the ways in which um, I could perhaps relate as a scholar is, um, you know, there are a couple of projects. There's one project that I'm involved in for the uh, International Committee for the Red Cross, where we look at um, sort of um, the extent to which uh, we see just or discourse in Hindu texts and, and sort of narrative texts, certainly Shastra, you know, um, justifications for violence and what that looks like. On the one hand, you know, do we really want to measure Indic tradition and sort of force Indic tradition into this established, uh, you know, Western model? On the other hand, this is now international humanitarian law, which in these times is on everyone's mind, actually. And so it's, this is where we are in history. And also uh, it's a question of, well, to what extent can these texts, to what extent can, um, and ethics of combat, the Mahabharata, perhaps even enrich or 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 or, or, or broaden the the existing discussion on just or tradition on just war theory. So we have these tensions that we certainly have to navigate. Similarly, when I when I do um, primarily, I look at Sanskrit narrative as a scholar. And I do literary analyses, for lack of a better word. And am I trying to show the extent to which Sanskrit narrative validates uh, Umberto Eco's theory, or is validated thereby, or or am I really saying Look at what's happening with these frame narratives. Look at the ways in which the, the the theory has to be adapted or enriched by what we see in in this context. And so, uh, I think it's uh, the dialogue's always great idea, in my opinion. Anyhow, tell us about the concept of God in the Bhagavad Gita. All, all right. So perhaps I can speak first. Well, but before that, perhaps you will you might be interested in knowing a bit about the structure of the volume. So, so we we divided the, the chapters into a very straightforward structure. We have four chapters that deal with the concept of God in some texts or Vaishnava texts. The first one is the Gita, the second one is the Bhagavad Purana, 
and Pancharatra and, and the Mahabharata. In the second part of the book, which is the which is larger, it has seven chapters. So so the second part deals with with specific traditions, the Alvars, uh Ramanuja, Madhva, and, and so on and so forth. So uh myself and Alan we we wrote in fact the first chapter. The first chapter of the first uh, section of the book. And this chapter we dealt with the the Gita. Uh, our task was kind of modest, I would say. We just wanted to to, to deal with the the Panedisk side of of the Gita. And for those who who don't know, uh, Panetheism is a kind of is a family of concepts of God or, or models of God. That is kind of in between uh, what in philosophy we call classical theism and pantheism. So classical theism emphasizes transcendence. So God is different from the cosmos; is completely transcendent to the cosmos. And and pantheism, on the other side, emphasizes immanence uh, to the point of saying that that God is the cosmos. Right? This is the traditional way of thinking of pantheism. So. Sorry, thinking of pantheism. So pantheism uh, claims that uh, the cosmos is in God, although God is more than the cosmos. So there is a kind of immanence, but also a kind of transcendence. And in the Gita, it has uh, many verses which point to this direction. And and many people they have they had uh, in the past they have mentioned that, but uh, Hindu studies scholars and also philosophers. So our goal in this chapter was to explain the sense in which the Gita is is, is Palantheist, or in other words, uh, the sense in which we can say that the concept of God found in the Gita is, is Palantheist. So th th this was the kind of the general call of the chapter. But perhaps I could add one more thing: is that we we did use some 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 Western categories, some, some metaphysical categories that nowadays philosophers are using, and they are very, very helpful, like uh, ontological dependence, fundamentality, and priority monisms. These are these were three categories that we used to explain or try to explain the sense in which the Gita might be said to be based. Fascinating. Why don't we touch on the the visions of of, of God, uh, the visions uh, of you know, of the divine in uh, in all in, all, in sort of all the first four chapters? So, how about uh, what does Edwin Bryant have to say about uh, the Bhagavad Krishna, the Bhagavata Purana? You want to touch on that? Okay, briefly. Um, again, um, the book was not written as a handbook. It's just different concepts of God as authors want to present them, or even different aspects of concepts of God. So Edmund Bryan looks, has been working on um, on a lot of things to do with Bhagavad Prana. He's been working on, on the Bhakti Yoga in the Bhagavad Prana. He has, a, I think, has a translation of the, of the Bhagavad parts, the 10th canto of the Bhagavad Prana, where you have Krishna Lila. So he's he's been immersed in kind of this kind of um, visual experience of, of of Krishna in his work, you know, um, whether it comes through the descriptions of the Bhagavad Purana or through yogic meditations and so on and so forth. So his particular um, 
angle on the concept of God in the Bhagavad Purana is on God's beauty and God's form. And that appears throughout the chap throughout the Bhagavad Purana that the God is expressed in terms of beauty. Uh, whereas in most like uh, Abrahamic traditions you have this idea of God being you know, you have to express it in very analytical terms. You know, the guy's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and so on and so forth. Um, he decided that actually, yes, this describes an aspect of God, sure, you know, but actually something that's more profound and something that's more immediate to the devotee, to the person who's actually immersed into the, in the Bhagavad Purana, is the vision of, of Krishna. And Krishna's form in that, especially in the 10th canton, that, that explanation of Krishna and the descriptions on Krishna's form are, are really based on the idea of beauty, on aesthetic, on aesthetics. So he kind of pushed that and explained not only is beauty essential to, to God, but also that beauty um, implies that God has form because without form, God does not have, there's no such thing as beauty. It has to be a form in order for beauty to exist. So that went into the idea that God has form as well. So his chapter was revolved around these ideas of beauty and form and kind of just unpacked it and showed how it works within, especially the 10th canto of the Bhagavad Purana. Perhaps God is not only all-knowing, um, all-powerful, and all-benevolent, but all-beautiful as well. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> all right. What's, um, uh, do we want to touch on uh, Gavin Flood's uh, and Angela Mal Malinar's contributions? Uh, we can, I'll do Gavin if you like, and Ricardo can do Angelica if you like. Um, so Gavin, Gavin Flood is, uh, I don't know if you know who Gavin is, he's quite famous in, in, in uh, uh, well, we, certainly anyone in Hindu studies, I think would probably know who, who Gavin Flood is. Yeah, yeah. There's famous books on Hinduism, which just kind of mean for university. If, if you can believe it, in my undergrad, in my intro textbook. Uh, he literally wrote this, wrote, wrote the book on intro Hinduism. That was my textbook when I was an undergraduate yeah. student. Uh, he's a very, 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 he's a gentleman. You know, he was my, he was my, um, doctorate, um, his advisor, you know, it's like he's my supervisor. So got to know him quite well. His, um, so the Pancharatra is an interesting text. It's one of the, you know, it's a, it's kind of like the Vaishnav leaning version of all the tantras. You have different tantric Texts, you have tantras, agamas, all these things, and then and all the traditions, whether it's Shaivism, Shaktism, Vaishnavism, kind of appeal to them. They have the, they're more based on the the, the um, how would you say? They're more based on the the regulative side of of service to God type of thing. So basically, they cover aspects of worship. They cover aspects of meditation involved in worship. It's like manuals more than anything, right? So. So in his chapter, we asked him if, you know, if you could figure out a concept of God from amongst all these kind of like, you know, rules, explanations, and so on, so on and so forth. And he developed his, his chapter explaining that, yes, there is to a degree a concept of God. And he explains basically it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's has all the attributes as you would, you would ascribe to Western kind of ideas of God. Yet on top of that, he said that actually the flood, the actual concept of God itself is not so much developed in isolation to all the rest of the texts are in India. Like for instance, you have the Vedanta texts and you have um, you have the other, you know, and all the other different, you know, texts like Mimamsa and all this stuff. They're, well, not so much Mimamsa, sorry, but it had the Puranas and everything else around it. And basically, and especially Sankhya. And, um, and 
the Pancharachas seem to borrow from these other traditions and develop the concept itself. So his conclusion at the end of the chapter is that, yes, there is a concept of God, but it belongs within this overall framework in India of different texts explaining what God is. So there's no actual specific concept of God defined exactly from the Pancharachas. They're just borrowing other concepts and redeveloping and developing in that way. Great. And the fourth and final contribution for the first part, which is God in Vaishnava texts, is by Angelica Malnarth called Supreme Self and Supreme Lord, Cosmological Monotheism in the Mahabharata Epic. And Angelica actually just recently contributed to an edited volume that myself and Thomas Taylor has put together. Um, we'll, we'll cover that in the podcast soon, I hope. Uh, uh, the fine scholar, indeed, another fine scholar. Uh, and a number of, of, of big names in this volume, actually. Um, so tell us, what does she have to say about um, about uh, God in the Mahabharata? Yeah, so uh, Angelica, she, she dealt with the two texts, uh, the Mahabharata, the Gita, and the Narayaniya. And she she dealt with uh, one of the topics, really, one of the themes that uh, we we emphasized, which is the, the issue of monotheism. Uh, because uh, usually we we tend to classify in the some Indian traditions, specifically Vaishnavism, as a monotheist tradition. But uh, it is a different kind of monotheism, of course, because we have the idea of avatars and the relation between some of those avatars, even within Vaishnavism, is not very clear, like the relation between Vishnu. And, and Shiva, for instance, or, or Vishnu Lachini. So, uh, yeah, she 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 did that. I mean, because we asked authors to to try to deal with this talk, and she used the the term cosmological monotheism. And that's one of the things that she does. Okay, we, we can't speak about everything. And she she tries to define this this concept. Uh, and that's the way she, she approached the, the text. She says that there is a kind of monotheism, uh, but a different one. Uh, Suganya also does something like that in her chapters, her chapter about the authors. And yeah, that, that was a very interesting contribution by Jerry. Fascinating. So there are a number of, uh, of subsequent contributions. The, the listeners, of course, will have uh, the link to the actual um, uh, to, to to the Rutledge site in the, in the podcast notes. I wonder if there are particular studies which, um, really they're all they're all they're all excellent. Are there particular studies that how do how do I ask this without asking a leading question? Were you surprised by anything? Was there anything about this process as the editors of this you know rich array of papers around this potentially contentious topic? <laughs> um, were there any contributions that kind of really? Um, surprise you or unexpected or, or, or so remarkable, I suppose, in a literal sense. Yeah, well, uh, as you said, I mean, I think all the chapters we we as editors, I pretty much have with the volume. To say, I think the authors did a great job. Uh, so it would be kind of unfair if I just say, "Oh, this is a wonderful chapter," but I have to pick one, right? 
Um, I'd say that well, well, so not, not, not necessarily in terms. So, so let's just clarify for the sake. So caliber, let's just say they're all excellent. So we're not we're not remarking on which ones were more <laughs> excellent. So so I'll save you from that charge. But uh, in terms of uh, um, in terms of our expectations or knowledge base, uh, were there any that were particularly uh, surprising? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the last one, the one, the last one, which deals with uh, the tradition uh, of. So I'm in Bhaktivedanta, written by Kenneth Valpi. Yeah, that, that, that chapter did surprise me because it, I think he did a great job because uh, uh, when we deal about philosophy and, and in the religions, for instance, we can think of uh, two kinds of contributions. I mean, it, it's a kind of... Uh, half idea, but it might work. We can think it, it was perhaps what we tried to do in our chapter on the Gita. We tried to use some philosophical categories to explain or clarify some issues within the Indian text, right? So we use some 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 uh, philosophical tools, you might say, to try to understand better in the sense in which the Gita is panentheist. But there is other. Uh, there is also another kind of contribution, which which is perhaps more interesting, uh, is that to use like insights and, and concepts and, and presuppositions that we find in, in those texts, in those traditions, to to solve or somehow help clarifying. I don't know some philosophical problem. So Kenneth Halpin, he did that. There is a very famous problem within philosophy of religion, which is the problem of highness. It's basically it's like that. Uh, uh, if God exists, why is he there? Why we can't see him, right? And, and from that you can you can you can build uh, an argument against the existence of God. It's a very famous argument. So he used like some insights from the Gita. And from uh, uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami's uh, teachings to to explain, yeah, we can't see God; He's hidden, right? But this has a purpose, and He He brought uh, the idea of uh, of the, that we fall that we find in Gaudiya that is that when someone is away from from his or her lover, the love increases. So, so he goes in this in this way, and I think he did a great job. The chapter I, I was really surprised because he comes from Hindu studies, but he did a great philosophical job, definitely. Yeah, the idea of hiddenness also kind of that. But what Ricardo was trying to explain there was um, I don't know if you read uh, Vidaha Bhakti by by Hardy. Yeah, that type of idea that uh, you know the the God is absent, and that absence makes the heart grow stronger. You know, more fonder or that. At the oh, well, uh, arguably, um, one cannot engage on a treasure hunt when the treasure is in plain sight. You know, <laughs> it has to be concealed in order to be found. Perhaps, perhaps. Whether that's wisdom or apologetics, we'll let the readers be the judge. Um, now, uh, perhaps I will um, make some indulgences based on my personal interest, although I'm fascinated by the entire concept. I particularly teach at the OCHS um, 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 narrative and philosophy. So, you know, epics, puranas. Um, and sort of on Vedanta, Sankhya, et cetera, et cetera. And so talk to us about, um, you know, the two conceptions in 
The Relationship Between the Self and God. That's the title of uh, Ananda's contribution, The Debate Between Shankara and Arbanuja. Maybe say just a quick word about what is that debate? You know, what are what are the the, the 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 different ways in which these exegetes interpret the divine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's a philosopher, but he he knows very well Indian stuff. Uh, his paper is really philosophical. I mean, in the sense that he, he advised in the beginning that he was not doing exegesis, and he just picked some theses which he claims are found both in Ramanuja and in Shankara. And, and, and he compared them. Uh, if I recall well, uh, he dealt with the, the issue of illusion because Shankar's position implies that the, the, the world is, is an illusion. And on the other hand, uh, Ramanuja takes a kind of realistic position and, and he compares those, those positions. And he uses uh, uh, a very common method we use in philosophy, which is to evaluate or to compare two different positions or two different theses by showing uh, that one of them is less problematic. We can't prove anything because you're doing philosophy or doing metaphysics, but if you have to rival to conflicting theses or positions, if we show that one of them has less problems, so that's preferable. So that's basically what he tried to do with with Ramanuja, he he claims that Ramanuja's uh, uh, position about, about about the self and about the world is less problematic than than the chunkers. Well, one cannot. Well, certainly when one looking when one is uh, looking at quote unquote Indian philosophy, one can't uh, think of Shankara and Ramanuja without thinking, of course, of Madhva. So the following chapter in defense of divine transcendence and Madhva's critique of material panentheism. Um, do we want to say a quick word about that one? I'm trying to remember it. Sorry, I'm working a lot of stuff right now. Let me quickly. Uh, uh, well, that's quite all right. You can um, you can say a quick word on that, or probably one you'll remember even more clearly is uh, the one on Shakti's and the Divine Possessor, the one that both uh, you both. Yeah, I can do that one quickly off the top of my head. That's not a problem. Sure. So, um, sorry, there's been a few chapters, and we've been also going through other editing as well in a journal special issue we've been working on as well. So, no problem. No, not a problem. So, the, so we were talking about two different approaches. Um, um, Ricardo mentioned that there's the the different approach we use, like for instance, just the standard concept of God, and then the other ways of dealing with concepts of God is in the Valpi chapter, Valpi and um, Shivananda, right? Um, this particular on the Shakti's one, chapter eleven one, we 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 took it from we had to start somewhere because um, the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Um, their concept of God is, is, you could say, I mean, I used to use the word multivalent before because there's a lot of different ideas coming in. You have the personifications of different deities and they all kind of merge together into one and ultimately there's Krishna, but Krishna is not different from Vishnu, from Narayan, and it becomes very, con con not convoluted, but confusing if you're trying to kind of put these things together. So what we decided to do is take a step back. And let's start from something basic here, you know, rather than try to explain all these different ideas, let's just take a basic concept that seems to be kind of underlying everything, right? And that basic concept is the idea that um, there's God, which is the possessor of Shaktis, which is everything else, right? So you have God is one, you know, thing, and then you have Shaktis, which is everything else. So... What are these shaktis? 
what exactly are they? And if you look at the bibliography of that chapter, there's hardly any secondary sources there. And there's a reason that's there, because you can't find that much philosophically talking about shaktis. They're gen generally, I mean, at the beginning of the, the book, we describe the methodology as normative, criti normative critical, and also uh, descriptive as well. So a lot of Hindu studies, when they look at, well, Indian studies, when they look at shaktis, it's more descriptive. This is what they are, but no one really tries to understand what they are. So in this chapter, we try to unpack a little bit of what's actually meant by these shaktis ontologically, rather than anything, rather than going to just all these different reasons that in error and so on and so forth. So the Gaudias offer tripartite um, division of the three shaktis, right? So you have one which they call antaranga or svarup, which is uh, intrinsic or, you know, own self. It's the intrinsic shaktis of God. So God has intrinsic shaktis, and these can include things like beauty and and knowledge. The same, you know, Satchitananda, these things. They can also include um, other things such as bhakti. Bhakti is an intrinsic shakti, believe it or not. And then you have also things like, uh, which go beyond that as well, outside other, in a sense. You have like God's companions, and you have God's realm. And uh, all these things are considered intrinsic to God, which is interesting, but also kind of problematic as well. Because if you consider intrinsic to be something that that which it belongs to cannot exist without it. So if something has an intrinsic quality, if you take away that intrinsic quality, that thing is not what it is anymore, then it becomes problematic. If you have a realm and you take away that realm and God is not what it is and what, what it is anymore, it seems in non-intuitive, right? So we're dealing with this idea of intrinsic shakti. Then the second type is what they call extrinsic bahiranga or maya shakti. This is the world, you know, matter, all this stuff, and also includes the creator, the causation of matter as well, which in Gaudiya's theology is maya. Um, and then you have a third one, which is where the jivas, living beings are, and that's called tatashta, or on the shore, or jiva shakti. And... Um, this resides somewhere between the two, and the, and the the reasons normally given why it's between the two is that number one, it's it's non-different from God, and yet it is different from God. So therefore, you have some this kind of like ambiguous thing that God is going on. And secondly, that those living beings that come under the the jiva shakti can either become enamored by spiritual energy, you know, become liberated, or they can be enamored by material energy and therefore become, you know, bound by matter. So this is also the reason why they call it intrinsic, or intermediary, sorry, uh, which is Tatashta in the shore, in the middle. So we wanted to try to figure out what all this is and then try to develop an ontology for this. So we did a reconstruction work here and tried to take the different shaktis as they're expressed by the Gaudias and put them into an ontology, an implicit ontology, as we uh, for the Gaudias. They're not explicitly stated, but it seems like there are different Shaktis that function in these different roles. So some of the Shaktis act as if they're properties of God, in the sense like if you have God's knowledge is kind of a property of God, right? So it functions in that way. So we kind of categorize that in there and a few others in there as well. And then you have those living beings like such as the the companions of God, the rest companions of God. They're, they have agency, so they're not really properties of God, So, but they're intrinsic. So they become, you know, agentive in a sense, agentive companions, uh, what we call tadia, um, 
which is um, a Sanskrit word that, that means related to. So in a sense, it's a relational property in a sense. And then you have a third type, which is, uh, I'm trying to remember it. We have, oh yeah, we have properties, which is what matter is about. So Shakti is the act as properties. And we have um, a fourth one, which I don't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, it's been a while. Which one is the words, what's the places, the realms, and stuff like that? They're not really agentive in a normal sense, so they so they have to be placed in the cat in the category as well. And each one of the tripartite categories also relates to these. So what we try to do is create create this kind of like categorization of how shaktis can work in in a in an ontology rather than a kind of mixed up everything kind of whatever whatever they may be. And from that, once we have that, then it becomes a discourse. Then you can either agree with it or not agree with it, but it becomes something to start with. You know, okay, so what is a shakti? At least we have some kind of beginning ontology. That was the that was the the purpose of this chapter, just to create a discussion on shakti because it doesn't really exist before that. So go on, Ricardo. Yeah, and and I think this chapter it illustrates well the overall um, goal. I would say of the volume, because yes, we did try to to reconstruct, but as Alan mentioned, um, by doing that, we uh, we showed a lot of questions. We didn't answer them, but we showed that those are some some of the questions that need to be answered. For instance, Alan said we, we presented this taxonomy of of shaktis. But how the same thing might be at the same time a property and uh, a kind of living being. It's the same concept, Shakti. So, so this needs to be explained. Other thing, uh, Alan mentioned that that um, we have this bit of bit of thing that, that the Shaktis, they are, they are different and not different from God. So that's another issue that we hope to deal with in the future because this goes against the, the, the law that I mentioned in the beginning, Aristotle's uh, law of non-contradiction. So something can't be at the same time in, in the same sense, different and non-different from uh, something else. So, so um, again, by, by trying to present this reconstruction, uh, some some questions and some problems, some philosophical questions and some philosophical problems, uh, they they are right. Yeah, and just briefly then to to, to tag on to what um, Ricardo said, the idea of beta beta is actually interesting in in and of itself. Now there could be a pushback, and I've pushed back as well on this that actually beta beta can be defined as a category. However, what we're trying to do is is in a sense problematize it in order to understand it rather than just leave it there and just accept it and go, that's it, without fully developing an idea of what it's about and leaving all the problems that it has intact. You know, just for, you know, future generations of scholars to go, oh yeah, okay, I have no idea what that means, but anyway, it sounds good. Um, what we try to do is just say, okay, it's a problem and how do we deal with this problem? So we problematize it and then hopefully through the problematization process, gradually it'll be a discussion on how to actually unpack this in a way that's um sound logically for for you know philosophy basically becomes philosophical rather than this theological category you know what i mean and if you i'm sorry about this if you allow me just to say a last word and if we if we do convince 
people, many people from in the studies, that there are those these problems they do exist. So it would be happening because as Alan said, uh, many, I mean, it's a kind of standard approach in a sense. Um, these problems, they are neglected and many people, they, they even get surprised when we say that there are problems to be solved. Yeah, certainly, um, certainly it seems clear, at least to me, that uh, oftentimes uh, in, in, in the text, particularly narrative, but not just narrative, um, there is um, method to the madness. There is there is the sort. There's an internalized treaties at play. So, for example, you know the text that I that I did my my doctoral work on, and I still work on a, a fair bit, is the Devi Mahatmya. You know this this mythological text of the great goddess. What this text is doing is it's encoding this uh, profound revolutionary idea about the divine, and it's panentheistic, and it's sort of the divinization of prakriti, and it's. In its narrative and in the in the hymns, you can kind of extract these philosophical precepts that are innate to the text, and this is this is a worthwhile endeavor. And yet, and yet, our medicine token, you will come up you'll come up against non contradiction all the time, and it'll be such that it seems that oftentimes um, philosophical concepts or realities or or, or um, reflections on the divine are cast in such a light that is it a or is it not a? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, is it A or not A? Yes, and it has a bit of a, a koan sort of uh, effect, but so it's fascinating. So tell me something: who's this book for? Who, who would most benefit from, from aside from any soul interested in such things? You know, who is the real intended audience for this work? Well, first of all, um, anyone can look at it. Actually, anyone who's interested in Indian philosophy will actually try to understand what is being said by Indian traditions philosophically. That's the broader audience, right? Then you have um, people who might be interested in research, which are, which are both um, those who are, who are in philosophy or doing philosophy and are interested in expanding their field to include other philosophical systems. Right? That's, that's another one. Whether it be philosophy or religion, or any other philosophy, because there's a lot of issues dealt here, dealt with here that are not just theological. They're also very much ontological as well, and how how the, the traditions actually try to unpack that and understand it. Then you also have um, another audience of those who are performing, who are in uh, religious studies, because um, a main issue we came across was that those who are in religious studies, specifically in the Indian traditions, um, tend to be more text-based based, and also historically-based. Very few are actually looking at philosophy. If they're looking at philosophy, it tends to be, tends to be a history of philosophy within Indian traditions. Now, no one's actually taking ideas and trying to unpack ideas and trying to see where the implications of the ideas or to see where the problems lie in the ideas. Very few are doing that. So this would be of interest of anyone, especially in the modern day when philosophy is is, is becoming much more globalized. It'd be interesting for those in Indian traditions to actually start to explore different philosophical ideas within the traditions themselves. And um, also, I think it, it to a degree it works as a textbook as well. I think um, because 
it does offer unique perspectives on Indian religions, which allows for conversation as well. So I think we have many different groups of, of uh, readers that are possible for this book. I think perhaps the final question I'll ask is just to come full circle from what we uh, touched on at the outset uh, is, you know, what is the intended impact? You know, what is the, the hopeful, what are hopeful takeaways of this volume as a whole? All right. Um, well, there are a couple of, of intended impacts. Uh, perhaps I could mention the, the, the one in which we already touched, which is uh, to, to sensibilize uh, first uh, Hindu studies scholars about the importance, I perhaps say, the needs to, to deal uh, with those traditions from a philosophical perspective. Uh, Alan mentioned that we had some difficulties by uh, with the communication problem, with the communication, it had some communication issues with uh, scholars uh, because we tried to, to give them our agenda, right? And they were not quite used to to asking those clients those kinds of questions. So if if you just uh, convince or or at least if there is people from Middle studies, they they think a bit more because we have a huge philosophical tradition, right, uh, in India, and and many of those thinkers they did philosophy, they did philosophize. I mean, they are giants. And, 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 but for, of course, uh, uh, things change and we are nowadays doing a different kind of philosophy. There are many, many debates going on, uh, within philosophy and, and we do believe that the insights, the ideas and many assumptions that those thinkers of the past, those Indian thinkers, they, they defended, they, they are wonderful tools to deal with. Some, some of the problems that address us nowadays. Uh, and, and Indian studies scholars, they, they are the experts in uh, those fields. They are experts in those texts. So, um, yeah, so perhaps the, the, one of the goals that we, we wanted to achieve was to start a kind of communication between those, those two fields. Because when you speak about philosophy here, I mean, that this is far as our project is concerned, and as far as development is concerned, we're talking in, in a sense about analytic philosophy, because it's, it's within this tradition that the real heavy debate about God, about basic uh, belief, uh, takes place. And so, one of our goals is really to 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 have a kind of bridge between those two fields. And if I can add one little quick thing sure. um, to add to, to Ricardo's, um, while he was saying this, it reminded me actually, um, was that in a sense, what this volume is trying to do, rather than kind of explain or describe a tradition, is trying to, in a sense, it's like the beginnings of a continuation of what was originally called a basia, in a sense. So you have basias, you have commentaries on different philosophers or you have commentaries on different texts and those commentaries are really trying to understand what those texts are about and trying to unpack what's in those texts and try to philosophize about those texts and even presenting new ideas on those texts as well so in a sense this is this this project not just the text itself but the project itself is really a means of kind of continuing that tradition 
in a sense, that tradition of of philosophizing on other people's works and, and expanding on it and understanding it and then getting a better idea of a whole tradition through that as well. So it's more of a more of a living kind of philosophical work rather than the description of a history. You see what I mean? Absolutely. And in, in um at times uh the production of scholarship on traditions are or can be viewed as part of the tradition itself, <laughs> augmenting, uh, sorry, expanding, augmenting, uh, partaking uh, in, in understandings uh, of tradition. So that's a fascinating intersection. All right, I think um, that's uh, time for today. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or add about the volume before we close? On the last thing you just said, just a quick thing there, actually, when you said that, you 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 reminded me that a, a few of the authors in this book are actually practitioners. So they're actually scholar practitioners. So as you said, exactly, you know, this, it is a continuation of the tradition itself in many ways, not just the, the scholarly tradition, but also the, how can you say, the, the practitioner, the inherent tradition as well, in a sense. So it's an interesting combination that we have here. Sure. And, and just, to, just to clarify uh, for the listeners, also, I think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, these scholar practitioners, while they're writing, uh, what, 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 their, their stance in the volume is scholarly, correct? They're not coming from an emic paradigm. Is that correct? Yes. The main the main thing is philosophy. That, that's what we've asked everyone to do, to, uh, to write a scholarly work, not to do apologetics or anything like that. So professional work. Yeah. And, and so, of course, that's clear to me, but that's something that I just wanted to put on the radar of our audience. There are, there are uh, many fine scholars who aren't practitioners and many fine scholars who are practitioners, but when being a scholar, one is a scholar. Certainly, the life of practice may well inform, uh, may well um, offer insight. Or, uh, nevertheless, it's it's a scholarly paradigm with 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 which one is engaged, uh, particularly for uh, the Rutledge Hindu Studies series. Um, um, but it is, I think, uh, an important phenomenon that there are more and more individuals who are ambidextrous in a sense. Uh, to use a metaphor where uh, they can engage in the life of practice and experience, as well as um, uh, the, the, the production of knowledge uh, on tradition. And I liken it to, to musicians who there might be fine uh, music theoreticians uh, or, or historians uh, who also have rhythm and pitch and can, can play. And they're not necessarily, uh, one could do one without doing the other, but perhaps it is. Perhaps there's something, uh, perhaps the practice of music can help understand historical turns in a way that could not be understood in the absence thereof. Alan, you want to say something? Yeah, just on, just to follow on what you just said, just to just explain what the volume is. Yes, like I said, there are some practitioners involved in this as well, but there are also some who are not practitioners, and there are quite a few actually who are just scholars in the, in the tradition. So you have a nice and interesting mix of both. Like you said, you have those who are kind of bringing their own experiences of a tradition into understanding philosophical concepts, which which a non-practitioner might not get, you know. And then you also have those who are non-practitioners who are able to look at a tradition very objectively without all the baggage that comes with it as well. So you have a nice mix of both of them, which, is, which I thought was I was very happy with anyway. Excellent. Well, thank you both for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you, Valerie. You're welcome. For those listening, of 
course, we have been speaking uh, with Dr. Ricardo Silvestre and Dr. Elaine Herbert on um, brand new edited volume uh, called Vaishnava Concepts of God, Philosophical Perspectives, brand new uh, Rutledge Hindu Studies series uh, contribution. Um, until next time, keep well, uh, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating uh, this thing called God and perhaps philosophical conceptions thereof. Take care.